All right, you guys can be seated. Kids, head on back to the back. All right, good to see everybody again. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Kind of been hanging out here in 19 and 20 for a few weeks now. If you've been here for the last couple of weeks, you know we've spent uh, some time in these verses. We're in the Ten Commandments. That's what we're talking about. These foundational verses for people of faith all over the world. And what we've been trying to do is take a look at these verses and figure out what are they here for us today. How do we use these things today? What do the Ten Commandments mean to us as Christians here in this place? Are they just simply a list of rules that we are to observe in order for God to be happy with us? Or is there something bigger that we need to see? We've seen multiple times as we've gone through this, as we've looked through this, what we've, what we've seen is that God is delivering these commands after he has saved his people. And we, we've driven that point home over the last few weeks. And so what we want to do today is continue to just look through this and figure out what these commands mean, what these commands teach us. And before we get there, I want to ask you a, a question. Just a couple questions to kind of get us going this morning. A couple of questions to kind of set the framework for the morning that uh, I, I hope will be able to, uh, uh, to guide us this morning. If I were to, and this is a ridiculous hypothetical, I know, so just bear with me, but it's the best way I can think of to kind of frame the rest of our discussion. If I were to walk up here and I were to tell you that somewhere in Knoxville, Round downtown somewhere, I had buried a box that had a hundred million dollars in it, right? hundred million dollars, somewhere in Knoxville was buried a box, and I were to give you a, a map that gave you very specific directions to that, and I were to tell you there's a, there's a map right here, I could hand one to each of you, and for each of you, there is a box for a hundred million dollars sitting in Knoxville, what would you do at that point? My guess is I'm going to be preaching to an empty room because you guys are going to come up here. You're going to take that map from me and you're going to say, see you later. I'm out of here. I'm going to get the box. I'll give some of it to the church, but I ain't going to be here for the rest of the time. So I, I'm not, I, that's my guess of what, what would happen. But what if I made it a little bit tougher and I said, you can't drive to Knoxville in order to get this, though. You have to walk, right? You've got you've to walk the entire way. So we're talking downtown Knoxville's 40-minute drive or so, right? Depends on how many cops are out and how fast you're going. But it's a 40-minute drive or so to, to downtown Knoxville, 30 minutes. But if I were to tell you it's there, but you can't drive, you've got to walk. My guess is you guys are going to be like, Okay, I'm walking, and you're heading down 11E. And then if I further, I had to say, you got to walk in what you're wearing right now. You don't get to go home and put on your athletic clothes and, and, and put on your Nikes and be able to, to, to walk in your walking shoes, your running shoes. you got to go in what you're wearing right now, even though it's going to be 90 degrees today. By the time you get to Knoxville, you're going to be sweating. You're going to be gross. You're going to smell bad. But my guess is, whatever you're wearing right now, is going to be just fine for you, right? You're going to get on the road, and you're going to start hightailing it to Knoxville because you know what awaits you is something uh, pretty amazing. You're going to be able to take that money, and it's going to be yours. All it takes is a simple act of obedience and effort, and the money is yours. Simple obedience with a promised 
result. But then we move here to the Ten Commandments, and we look at the Ten Commandments this morning, and we don't seem to view those quite the same way. Instead of seeing a simple act of obedience, we begin, we begin to immediately push back on those commands, right? We start to say, well, hang, hang on just a second, hang on just a second. Do, do I really have to do it this way? I don't really feel like doing it that way. Can, can I, can I kind of hedge on this and, and get away this? Or, or, or what, if I, what if I follow the other nine, but I miss one of those? And we start trying to figure out how we can get around or how we, how, how we maybe fall short in one or two, but we see if we can compromise and say, look, I'm not great at a couple of these. A couple of these I'm a little bit better at. And, and we say, all right, so the Ten Commandments, these are a little too restrictive. God, can you just give me a little bit of leeway here on some of these? Now, whenever I tell you that you've got to walk to Knoxville in the clothes that you're wearing, no matter what the temperature is outside and you've got to go, you don't say, well, hang on just a second. That seems a little too restrictive for me. That seems like an unnecessary restriction that you're putting on me. I don't think that that works, so I, I think I'm going to do it a little bit differently. See, you don't do that. You say, whatever, it doesn't matter to me, because the end result of what you're going to get is far greater than the temporary restriction that is put on you. So do you, do you see how, how those two things begin to, to shape up differently there? Just how we begin to look at the commands a little bit differently there. And furthermore, what we begin to do is we, we start to say, well, maybe this isn't what I wanted after all. God, I don't think I'm going to walk to Knoxville. I think I'm going to walk to Morristown because that's a little bit closer and that's a little bit easier. But if I tell you, well, there's no money in Morristown, then what you begin to say was, well, that's not really fair because it's easier for me to go to Morristown. I think that that's where I want to go, and that's the opposite direction. I get that, but that's really what makes more sense for me. I got more family out that way. I'd rather just walk that way. I'll have, I'll have more that way if I do that. And God is saying, that's fine. You can walk to Morristown. I, I'll tell you, look, you can walk to Morristown. You're just not going to find any money whenever you get there. This analogy can kind of play out, and again, it's a, it's a little bit ridiculous, but it can kind of play out in what we see the Ten Commandments and the role that they play in our lives. Simple obedience, promised result. Now, if you've been here the last couple of weeks and you've heard me preach a little bit, you know that it's not quite that simple, but it's at least a good place for us to start. So let's get to work this morning. Let's answer some of these questions. Why is it that whenever it comes to just getting a hundred million dollars out of a box, we're willing to put up with whatever rules and restrictions you put on us, but whenever it comes to following God's commands and the, the, the ultimate prize that he puts out before us, we immediately begin to push back on those restrictions. Why is it that we're willing to walk to Knoxville wherever we need to walk in whatever we're wearing and we don't even push back on those commands, but we will push back on the commands that God gives us? Why is it that that is what happens? And there's a good reason for that that plays itself out in a lot of different ways. So we're back in the book of Exodus, working our way through the Ten Commandments. If you've been here, so last week we, we broke the Ten Commandments into two general ways, right? We broke them into two different categories, Similar to the, the model that Jesus gave us, when Jesus was asked about the greatest commandment, what he said was that, that there's, there's two commands in the way that you can sum up the, the law. Love God and love others, right? That's what we talked about last week. Love God, 
love others. And that's how we've broken down the Ten Commandments. So last week was love God. First three commands, vertical commands, have to do with our relationship with God. Now these next commands that we look at will all have to do with our relationship with one another. There's one there in the middle that's the the Sabbath that I think really kind of bridges that gap and has to do with our relationship with God and our relationship with others. If we have time, we'll look at that this morning as well. But we've seen how the the Ten Commandments are a diagnostic tool for us, how they kind of tell us where our hearts are, but then we began to look at last week how they're also a path to joy. And so we started to break down the commandments, look at them individually. And the primary thing that we saw last week is that the first commandment is the one from which all the other nine flow. We said that you can't can't break any of the other nine commandments without first breaking the first commandment. Because by definition, if you're breaking the other commands and you are taking God out of his position of authority in your life, and you are worshiping another God before him that was last week in summary you can listen to the rest of it if you want want a better breakdown of it but that's basically what we talked about and then this morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at the following commands we're not going to get to all of them and break them down one by one but we'll be able to talk about what those commands are for and how they establish a pattern for us so let's read exodus 20 one more time the text of the 10 commandments exodus 20 verse 1 And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner, sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may, go, may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So there they are. That's the Ten Commandments. Simple enough. Simple enough, pretty straightforward. You see the breakdown there, the first few that are about our relationship with God and the rest of them that begin to switch that focus from our relationship with God to how we interact with one another. Another, and that's what we want to look at today is the one another part of this. The final six to seven deal with how we function in society, how we function within our relationships. And if we're going to understand anything about these commands, we need to understand that these these commands are given to show us something about the way God works, something about ourselves, and something about our joy. Very similar to what we did last week and how we looked at these last week. 
Remember, what we said last week is I don't need a command for something that I'm already going to do. I don't have to be told to do something that I would by nature do anyway. I need commands that prevent me from doing what I am already going to do. And these fit that bill. You say, well, hang on just a second. One of those says, thou shalt not murder. That is not in my natural inclination to go and murder anyone. At least not completely. I mean, I might think about it. I might, I might dream about it. I might really wish that I could do it, but it's not within me to naturally just want to murder someone. So how can you say that these are uh, our own natural inclinations? I don't need a, a command that says don't murder. I'm not going to go and kill someone. Well, maybe, but Jesus goes on in the Sermon on the Mount. We've talked about this, how he expands out of the letter of the law and looks more at the spirit of the law. And how these commandments are not in isolation. They are the commands from which all other commands flow. So they set things up, give us an umbrella, give us general categories. And then as you go throughout the law and as you go throughout the the kind of moral code that's written, the law that is given to us is an expansion of these commands. These are kind of like the... uh, for lack of a better term, kind of like the Constitution. They set up the the general framework, and then it gets played out after that in specifics. And so Jesus gets away from the, the, the letter of the law, and he says, look, you may not be ready to kill someone, but if you have anger in your heart towards someone, then you are every bit the murderer as someone else. Now, that's not going to work out the same way in our own Our own legal system is not even going to work out in the same way that we view the weight of those sins. But the root of those sins is the same thing. The root of those sins is the same thing. So these commands are there to keep us from doing what our own inclinations are already driving us to do. But why? What's so bad about our natural inclinations? Let's take it out of theology. Let's take it out of church world right here because it can be real easy to be like, oh yeah, yeah, I get it. I know the theological answer to this. But let's, let's take it out into the real world. Why do I need a list of rules that run contrary to how I feel? Why can't I just pursue what I feel and let that work itself out in, his, in, in our lives? And God tells us, sure, you can feel free. Just what I, I said before, you, you certainly can do that, but it's desi- it, it works against how you're designed to work. So God says, sure, if you want to walk to Morristown, feel free. But you're not going to get the joy that you would if you were to be walking to Knoxville. Right? You're going you're gonna to walk to Morristown, and you may be able to get some pals, but that's about it. You're not going to get $100 million, Right? Do you see, you see the difference there? So like you may be going this way and you may, you may think that you have something you want there, but you're not going to get the ultimate source of joy that you wanted. And so God says, yeah, you're, you're free to go the other way. But if you go that way, you're not going to find the joy that you think you're going to find. So instead of allowing us to simply run headlong into this place of what is ultimately destruction, He gives us these commands, and in giving us these commands, he says, look, these commands will tell you about who I am and about who you are and about how you were designed to work. So I just want to take one of these commands. We'll just just take the next one. We'll skip over the Sabbath one for now, but uh, the, the fifth command, the next one that comes up is honor your mother and your father. We can't go through all of these, but I think you can kind of see the pattern here. Honor your mother and father. 
every kid thinks that their parents slipped this one in on them. Every kid is like, that can't really be in there because all these others are very simple. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And those all make sense. Like, I get it. I can't lie. I can't kill somebody. I can't steal things. Like, those all make sense. And, and it, but then they say, honor your, your mother and your father. And every, every kid's like, oh, come on. That's not really in there. Like, you, you're making that up just so I have to do this, aren't you? But this is, this is in there, and it's in there because it, establish, it establishes a pattern, both for the children and for the parents. You see, if the command is teaching us something about God and about ourselves, we need to see that, that God is establishing this, this pattern for parents to be in a place of honor. And the reason that they're in this place of honor is because they are on this earth the representative, the, the stand-in for God's authority. That's the way parents are designed to primarily work. Now, we can all think of a thousand different ways in which that goes sideways. We can all think of all the different ways in which sin has corrupted that ideal. But that's the way the ideal is supposed to work. Is that as parents, we are supposed to be stand-ins for God's authority so that whenever our kids see our authority, they in turn see God's authority in our lives or in their lives. And so it establishes a pattern both for parents and for kids in the way that this is here. God creates this, and, and he says that, that parents are due honor because of what this position is supposed to be. So in giving this command, the first thing we see is that it's for parents, not just for kids, to kind of define the role of what it means to be a parent. And we are to model as best we can the authority and the graciousness of God in a child's life. And then as a result, as a result, because we are, we are to do that, kids should have a default position of honoring their parents. Not only is this good for parents, this is good for the kids. So this is good for you because it puts you in a place where you can flourish under that authority. Paul says that the, he, he makes the observation that this is the first command that comes with a promise. And the promise is that it would go well with you and that you would live long in the land. So it comes with a promise. It lays it out for us. And what it shows us is that if we are to follow this command writ large in a, in a larger picture, then it is both good for the individual and for the society to be able to follow these things. It's good for, for a, 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 a society when parents mirror God's discipline and grace and where kids can honor that. Where that is done, societies can flourish. That is the pattern that we, fought, that we see in every one of these commands. If I were to go through each one of these, I could lay it out why it makes sense for these commands to be good, both for the individual and for the larger picture for society, right? So that's how these play out. So these are both individual commands for individuals to follow, but also ones that support the larger society that is around each of these commands, over and over and over, we could go through and we could talk about how this works. Some of these, it's very easy for you to see how that works. I don't even have to go through and spell it out. You can see it easily. And so it begins with us taking our eyes off of ourselves, our own inclinations, our own base instincts of our flesh, and lifting them to see the long-term application of these commands for joy in our lives, and for the flourishing of those around us in our lives. So do you see how these 
We make these commands to be all about ourselves and the things that we can't do. But the primary thing that these commands are for is for the relationship that you have with others, not so just so that you can thrive, but so that all those around you can thrive as well. So do you see how that works? Those commands are not just individual commands. They are corporate commands, and they are commands that are not just for your joy, but for everyone's joy around you now temporarily that may not feel true it may feel so much easier for you to be able to rebel against your parents authority it may feel so much easier and feel good for you to be able to tell them how they're unfair and how you shouldn't have to listen to them but in the long term doing this will ultimately bring you harm will the parent always be right goodness no Will the parent always be worthy of honor? I mean, if we're honest, no, not even close. We're not as parents. But that's why the command serves us so well. It helps us to see that we don't measure up to this in snapshots in our lives. But whenever the command is applied in a larger picture, it is for our, it is for our joy and for the, the flourishing of the relationships around us. Command after command follows this pattern. Reject our impulse for the good of others, and for the good of ourselves. Consider the needs of others, and it helps them in the short term and will eventually help you in the long term. This is the pattern that God establishes as our pathway to true and sustained joy. This is how Jesus is able to say that the golden, the golden rule, and he's, he's able to say over and over and over in the New Testament to, to love others your neighbor as yourself, right? Love your neighbor as yourself because what he's saying there is whenever you care for your neighbor in this way, it is good both for you and for them, the way it carries out. This is both the nature of God and our path to joy. We can see how this plays out in other places in the Bible as well. Look in Psalm chapter 1, Psalm chapter 1. Famous psalm, if you've been around church at all, you've heard this psalm, you've read this psalm. Psalm chapter 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like, ch- like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So we read that and we say, yes, amen. This is called a wisdom psalm. God, make me wise like this man. Make me wise like this blessed man that stands in the righteous, the congregation of the righteous that follows your commands, that loves your commands. And we say, yes, make me that person. And then we say, you know what? I so believe that this is true in Psalm 1, that the wise person lives long in the land and that the wicked person who does not listen to the commands of God is blown away like smoke in the wind, like chaff in the wind. They're gone before you even know that they are there. I believe that's true. And then we say, I will try extra hard this year to do those. 
I will look at these commands and I will say, yes, God, teach me the spirit of these and I will try extra hard to do them. I will abide by them. And that's what we do until we don't. And we never do. We never do. Don't you think that that's a little bit odd? That I can lay out for you each of these commands. I could spend the next hour going through each of these commands telling you how your joy is dependent upon you obeying those commands. Right? Just like I did very briefly here on that first command talking about honor your, your mother and your father. I could go through each one and I could say your joy, your happiness, your fulfillment and the happiness of the people around you is contingent upon you obeying those commands. And you would look, you, you hear that and you think, yes, I want joy. I want those around me and the relationships that I have to feel that joy. I want them to flourish. I want my kids to flourish. I want my, my spouse to flourish. I want my friendships and my, 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 you know, the, the, my friends at church and my discipleship groups, I want them to flourish. So I'm going to abide by these so that they can flourish and I can have joy. And then we don't do it. That, doesn't that strike you as odd that I could get you to walk to Knoxville right now for money? But if I tell you that true joy is ahead of you if you just follow these commands, you know as well as I do, you don't have a shot to abide by every one of those. That strikes me as odd. And the reason that this is true is because walking to Knoxville is a simple act of physical obedience. Following these commands is not a simple act of physical obedience. Why is it that with so much on the line, I still can't seem to follow these commands? Why is it that if I believe with everything in my heart that I would be the blessed man of Psalm 1, I still can't make myself do it? Why is it that I still have to put filters on my computers and I still have to apologize to my kids for when I yell at them or for when I get angry and that I constantly want things that I don't have because I think those things will be the things that will make me happy and I will find joy? Why is it that I'm constantly trying to figure out something else that will satisfy me when I know that this is right here in front of me? Why can't I just say, this is good for me, I will do it and do it? I, might, I know my life will be better if I just do what God asked me to do. So why is it so hard? In part, it's because becoming a Christian and being a Christian is not about following commands. At least not commands 2 through 9. Because we can fake 2 through 9, at least for a little while. At least to an outward appearance, we can fake commands 2 through 9. We can manage to, to try to set up things so that we don't steal anything, right? That we're constantly on guard that we're not stealing anything. And so we can make sure that we've got that command under wraps. And maybe if you're really, really good, you can, you can make your way all the way through commands 2 through 9. You can't, but let's just say you could. The, the thing is, 2 through 9 are just acts of obedience, 
But command number one is not simply an act of obedience. The first one isn't about avoiding things. It's about our hearts. Let's look at it this way. Turn with me to the book of Galatians. We'll be in the book of Galatians for the rest of our time this morning. Turn, turn with me to the book of Galatians. Chapter 5. Paul is writing, the book of Galatians is uh, a complicated book uh, that is all about how the law works in our lives now. And he's writing in chapter 5, and this is what he says in chapter 5. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. So the two are set at odds with one another. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That is not an exhaustive list. He's just saying, you know what it looks like when you follow your flesh. Here's a, here's a, an, an, a hodgepodge of examples. And he could keep on going. He says, I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against, things, against such things there is no law. Do you see how this works, what Paul sets out for us here? The works of the flesh, those things come naturally to us. We don't have to do anything for those things to happen. But the fruits of the Spirit, those do not come naturally. Those are a little bit different. You can't really just do the fruits of the Spirit. Do you see how those are different than the, the list of the work of the flesh? The list of the work of the flesh are easy, simple. You can do them, no problem. You don't even have to try. The works of the Spirit, you can't just do those. They have to sort of kind of well up within you. They have to come from inside of you. You can't just act those out. You see, if you told me I had to walk to Knoxville for the money, I could do that because you just do that. You just, you get out on the, the road and you just start walking. But if you tell me that I have to love something, I can't just do that. Does that make sense? Are you following me there? I can't just choose to love something just on my own. It has to kind of come from within me. I'll give you a, a, a goofy kind of analogy. I, Isaiah has a, a blanket that uh, he, he lays his head on when he sleeps. He's had it since he was uh, a newborn. It was actually Abby's blanket for about a year. It's a great little swaddling blanket. And so whenever Abby kind of got out of swaddling, Isaiah was born, we swaddled him in it, and he did not give it up after that. He loves it. He calls it his yellow blankie. It's just a little thing. He, he carries it around with him. Um, and, and the main thing is he's just got to have it to, to sleep, right? So he loves this thing. He prays for it whenever we, we have dinner. Uh, whenever it's his turn, whenever he prays, he thanks God for yellow blankie. It's, it's, it's in the, the prayer chain, right? So he, he, he loves this thing. It's, it's just 
Linus from Peanuts, that's how this works. It's the same kind of thing. He loves it. Loves it. His cousin's a couple of years younger than him, and uh, oftentimes will kind of observe some of the things that Isaiah does, and will we'll kind of try to m- mirror that a little bit, right? So he, he saw that Isaiah had this blanket that he loved so much, and, 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 and his cousin Carter said, you know what? I want a blanket that I love too. And so he found a blanket in his room that was a similar size, a similar kind of thing. And for about two weeks, he tried his best to love that blanket. He would take it to bed with him. He would try to carry it with him whenever he would leave the bed. He would try to take it whenever they went out of the house. But occasionally he would forget it. A couple nights would go and he would forget to get that, that, that blanket. Until after about two, three weeks, the blanket was just kind of an afterthought. And he eventually just said, I, I, I can't do it. I tried, I tried to love that blanket, but he, but he couldn't. I mean, that's what he said. He, he couldn't do it. You see, for Isaiah, that, that love for that little blanket, that is within him. That is a part of him. But for, for, for his cousin, for my nephew, like, he couldn't make himself love that blanket. He couldn't externally act himself into a love for that blanket. Are, are you, following, you following me on that one? Like, he would forget about it because he didn't love it. He would forget about it and he would, he would leave the blanket behind because it wasn't just a part of who he was. It was just an external act of obedience that would try to make himself get to that place. And so that is how it works for us. We cannot do by the flesh what can only be done by the Spirit. And for too many of us, this is how we have defined the Christian walk. For too many Christians, this is the Christian walk. External obedience as best people can see it, and then we assume that somewhere in there, maybe there's some love somewhere. And so we try our best to carry out commands 2 through 9 and all the ways that they flesh themselves out in our lives. But command 1, you can't fake. In order to have God as the primary source of joy in your life, in order to have God as the central figure to worship in your life, that happens when something within you puts Him there. And so you cannot do by the flesh what is only done by the Spirit. Following the commands in a way that first honors that first commandment is a supernatural work of God, not a work of effort on our part. We see this play out in in churches and in the Christian life everywhere. So, so, so you come in here this morning, we've, we've got a band that's up here that's singing, band killed it this morning, they were wonderful, man, you get those drums rolling, you get the song building just right, a couple of hands will go up, and you can really feel like, you know what, I'm feeling something here. And we can assume that because we're feeling something, that that is a work of the Spirit. But listen, you can, you can play the drums just right and you can have the perfect chord progression, but just because that happens doesn't mean the Spirit has moved. And too often what we have done in churches, we have assumed that because we did something physically just right, that the Spirit has also been a part of that. Now was the Spirit a part of our worship this morning? 
It was for me, but I don't know if it was for you. But just because you felt like your hand needed to go up or because you were grooving with the music doesn't necessarily mean the Spirit was here. I'll tell you another way that we do it. I'll tell you another way that this plays itself out. is We go to a Bible studies and we assume if we go to enough Bible studies, we do our Bible studies well enough and we do them just right, then we will know more. And if we know more, we assume that that means that we are producing disciples. That we are becoming disciples. But here's the thing. Knowing more is a physical act. I can fill you with all kinds of knowledge about theology and about the Bible. And I can give you books to read. But knowing more is not becoming a disciple. And so we can fill our lives with all kinds of activity that we think is going to make us a disciple. But really it's just going to make us smarter. Really it's just going to make us know the Bible a little bit better. Now, the the wonderful thing is that God tells us if we study his word, that he will work through that word. But if we think that just doing another Bible study will make us a better disciple, that's not how that works. I'll I'll tell you, uh, just from a a, a personal example, if, if if I decide, you know what, I need to be more patient. I'm losing my temper too much. I need to be more patient. And so I, I create these systems in my, my, my life so that, so that I make sure that I'm more patient. So if I feel like I'm going to get angry, I've got to go outside and I've got to count to 100 before I can come back in and start yelling at anybody and knocking heads, right? So I can say that that's going to make me more patient. And here's the thing. It probably will make me more externally patient it will it will it will draw back the outbursts but it doesn't change my heart listen external obedience is a wonderful thing but if external obedience replaces a changed heart then we've totally missed what the point of the command is and you say well what do i do with this then where where do i Where do I go with this? Because here's the thing. You can't make yourself love something. You can't make that kind of well up within you. We don't have the the, the spirit of self-control that just wells up within us. We can white-knuckle it for a little while, but at some point, the grip loosens. So where does this come from? I think the best prayer that we can pray is one that Augustine is is famous for for praying. And he says that God command what you will, but grant what you command. So give me whatever commands you want, God. Lay it out in the Ten Commandments. But God, I need you to give me the spirit that will allow me to obey that command. I need you to do that for me. And this is where the Christian life shifts from one of obedience to one of surrender. From one of simple doing certain things to instead going to Christ and saying, I depend wholly on your grace right now. From moving from a place that says, I can do this, to another place that says, I've got no other gods before you, and I've got no other gods that are going to help me with this I need you to show up for me now. 
If you keep reading in Galatians chapter 5, the very next verse, what Paul writes is, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. So what Paul wants you to see is that if you are going to be obedient, it's not a matter of subduing the desires, it's a matter of killing the desires. And the only way you kill the desires is that you go with Christ to the cross. And you come to Jesus. And in belonging to Christ, we too, like him, have been crucified. This is part of what it means when it says that we share in his sufferings. Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 2, a couple of chapters before that. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So how do we live out the Ten Commandments that have been put before us that do demand our obedience? We acknowledge that we are in our flesh incapable of that obedience. And we cast ourselves on the mercy of Jesus. And we say, save me, crucify me, so that I no longer live, but it's Christ who lives in me. Will we carry that out perfect in this life? No. But this is the beautiful picture of the gospel. We talk a lot about how the gospel is the removal of our sin. And yes, that is absolutely true. It is the removal of our sin. But it is also the, the, they call it the imputation, the giving of Christ's righteousness to us. And so now we can lay our hearts, lay our lives on the line and give that stuff to Christ. And then he can empower us and enable us to follow these commands. It's a beautiful picture of grace. The commands are given and our obedience only comes truly from our heart when we have come to Christ. So this morning, if you've not come to Christ, there's no amount of commandment following that can, can heal your soul. We talk about the the, the Sabbath, where does the Sabbath fit in this? I'm not going to go into a long dissertation about this, but, but the Sabbath is, 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 is kind of the, the bridge because it talks about honoring our relationship with God, not trying to do everything ourselves. It talks about honoring our, uh, those that are under us and those that are around us, not uh, making them work on those days. So it's, it's about God, it's about others. But the reason that that, that one is, is, is so good here, because it gives us such a great picture of how this works out now. If you go to the book of Hebrews, what it says is that Christ is our Sabbath now. That Christ is the one in where we find rest now. That no longer are we bound to the, the law in the same way, but instead we go to Christ and we find our rest in Him. So we can obey and observe the Sabbath, not because we have a list of rules of things we can and cannot do on a Saturday or on a Sunday. But we can obey the Sabbath because we rest in Christ and we realize there's nothing we can do to achieve our salvation. There's nothing we can do to perfectly obey these commands. There's nothing we can do other than to rest in the one and only person who did. So this morning, I invite you to, to step into that rest to stop the struggle, to find a place that, that will enable you to live a life as the blessed man of Psalm 1 is laid out. One that 
one that endures, one that, that, that stands, one that isn't blown away like chaff in the wind. And the only way you will do that is to come to Christ and to know Him and to find your rest in Him, to stop working as though everything depended on you, but to start trusting and casting yourself on Him because you know everything depends on Him. That is the Christian walk. That's what it means to live out these commands. And I encourage you this morning to do that. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your grace that we can read these commands. We can see how great we, greatly we fall short of them. That we can be fully aware of our desperate need because we can't obey these commands. And that you can come and you can say, rest in me. Father, we do pray along with Augustine, command what you will, but grant what you command. We desperately need you to come through for us here. And we praise you and we have faith in you that you will, because your word tells us it's true. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.